It's August 31st, 2009, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. Today's guest is Nevada Weir, who besides having the coolest name of any photographer I know, is an accomplished and successful travel photographer whose work has regularly appeared in National Geographic, Outside and Geo magazines, as well as numerous books. She's traveled all over the world, including Southeast Asia, India, China, Nepal, and South America. For over 25 years, she's lived the life of the travel photographer that many dream and aspire to. But beyond the exotic travel and beautiful photographs is a lot of hard work. You don't get to enjoy a career like hers without knowing a lot more than just how to work a camera, which is why I'm excited about having her as a guest. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Nevada Weir. Well, Nevada, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Um, let's start off with your early history. I know you, you started photography in your late 20s, and you started off um, with a large format camera shooting black and white film. And I'm wondering, what do you feel that allowed you to do in terms of your own photographic life? as opposed to having started off, say, using a 35-millimeter camera? Well, you're right. Actually, I, I fell in love with this um, Deardorf, wooden Deardorf camera, and partly I think I fell in love with the myth of, you know, standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon with this cape over my head. And um, actually, I started with color film large format, which I realized was really over my head, too difficult. And so I, I went down to black and white because I could manage a black and white darkroom and, you know, I, I think in general, uh, I only worked with the the uh, large format maybe for about a year because I realized pretty quickly it was a it was a bad backpacking camera, especially the tripods in those days. They were big and mm. heavy, big metal spikes on the end. So I did. I didn't stay too long with the large format, but I did stay with the black and white darkroom, and that's where I think um, that has really helped me a lot. Even though I really consider myself a color photographer, and I actually think color photography is harder than black and white personally, I realize that I do see images uh, with a black and white skeleton and a color veneer on top. Because learning how to see the contrast in an image and how much, how much important and how much weight and impact that has on an image, I, it resulted, I think, a lot from working so long with black and white. Mm. Yeah, because when I look at your images, I know that people would look at them and go, oh, she's a color photographer. But when I look at your images, to me, you're a photographer who makes images using color, which is a much, much more different thing. How, how you talk about building your images in terms of a skeleton of black and white, but how do you see and incorporate color so that it doesn't dominate the image and supplements what you're trying to do in terms of you know, composition and lighting. 
Well, I, I think color is very seductive, and that's why uh, I, I think there's a lot of people who are not very good color photographers because I think you do, uh, to me, uh, the color is only just one small part of you know, the possibilities. I'm looking at the skeleton of the contrast, which is, is absolutely critical because the way our I see contrast is not the same way slide film, you know, sock sees contrast. And now digital, I mean, it doesn't have the same uh, range of, of uh, contrast that our eyes does. So I, I have to learn how to see the image like the uh, whatever media it is I'm using. And then, you know, it's also about the light. It's also about, you know, what's more dominant, the light, the action, the color, the, the composition. And as far as I'm concerned, you have to have two. So to me, color is only one of the four possibilities. And I think it's hard to use color correctly. But I, I really believe that's in direct relationship to how one sees contrast. Mm. Because it's easier to photograph color in low contrast, you know, and make it really dominant. It's much harder to photograph uh, a color photograph in, in high contrast light. And what, what's, what's the challenge about photographing in contrast light as opposed to more diffuse light that you feel is, is that most people miss and, and have such a difficulty with? Well, because because the contrast is rendered so differently, you know, uh, uh, on film or also on digital than the way we see it, there has to be a pattern, you know, and and that's what's also true about black and white, right? You have to be able to squint your eyes, and the eye has to be able to flow freely through the light and the black areas. And most of the time, you know, we psychologically filter this contrast out in our daily life. We don't notice that the light is splotchy. Like right now, I'm looking out at the aspen trees outside my house, and the light is really splotchy, and it doesn't bother me in everyday life, but it's going to bother me in a photograph because our eyes um, need a pattern, right? So if you have that pattern, and then you can add color effectively to that pattern, my gosh, the impact is phenomenal, you know, and I think, and that's why I think it's harder than black and white. Mm. But in low contrast light, you know, you can make the color stand on its own because you don't have to worry about, you know, this potentially distracting or potentially very effective uh, use of contrasty light. Um, color can be really dominant in, in a low uh, contrast image, you know. So then I'm looking more at how the color plays against each other than I am worrying about it on the skeleton of the contrast. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. You, you're primarily a self, self-taught photographer, and you talk about, you know, looking at looking at the works of great photographers like Elliot Porter and and Imogen Cunningham, and them being your basically your teachers in terms of photography. What was it about, you know, looking at these books, looking at these works that they sort of instilled in you, and helped? to shape your, your ability, not to be, just become a photographer, but in terms of your ability to see? Uh, that's a great question, um, because I am self-taught, which is, you know, has its advantages because I'm not trying to emulate uh, any other of my teachers, so to speak. On the other hand, you know, I was the teacher, and the teacher didn't know very much. But I did learn from these books, and it's great you mentioned Elliot Porter because he was really actually very seminal in me becoming a uh, a color photographer because I remember I was out in Escalante Canyon, Utah, looking at these beautiful walls and going, I could do this. I could photograph this. And I realized, of course, it was, it was much harder. And what I did was when I looked at images 
that, uh, whether it was at an exhibit or in books, I didn't just sort of pay attention, oh, I like that, just, you know, cavalierly. I really sat down and examined the images, and I asked myself, why? Why do I like that image? Why don't I like it? Why does it work? And I really, really dissected images, so I knew the images that, that really spoke to me, I knew why. And that made it easier for me to photograph with a greater awareness. Hmm. That's that's so true. That's so true because I, I think that's probably one of the greatest gifts that you can give yourself is when you take the time to go move beyond whether you like it or not and try and identify why an image sings to you. Because if you can discern right. and, that, and, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, well, uh, I, and I was also just going to say that, you know, uh, also if my mistakes spoke to me a lot, too, because I, I always tried things, whether it was in low light. I still do. I mean, to me, I, I still feel like I have a long way to go towards virtuosity in, in, in seeing. And so, uh, you know, I experiment. And then when, I, when something works, I figure out why it works and how I did it. So then I could, you know, again, it wouldn't just be a happy mistake. It's something that I could consciously integrate, you know, into my photography again in the, in the future. So, you know, I, do, I would do that with photographs I like, but I also did it with the, you know, with my own images, too, and particularly when I just sort of made a, a happy mistake that worked. Mm. That can be a real difficult thing to do, particularly, you know, if if you don't have, you know, another person there to sort of, point out what you may or may not be doing doing right because it can you can easily get caught up into you're you're making an effort to make a really distinctive image yet find yourself still making you know the same mistakes over and over again because it may be something that you're not seeing or something that you're not doing that is you know the impasse between you being able to have that that breakthrough during that time that you were developing did you have other photographers that you turned to for for help and, and to help you with that? Or were you pretty much, was it insular or was part of it when you started going out there and started working professionally that, that you had that opportunity? Well, luckily, you know, I grew up uh, for the most part in Santa Fe, which is an art community. So not only did I have influence of photographers here, I also had the influence of great painters, which has a great impact on me too. So, um, yes, there's been a number of photographers who have really helped me. And, and one of the things that I, I love about my, my, my photography comrades is that everyone is really open and willing to share and we discuss the photography and particularly as it's become more technically challenging, you know, um, it, there's been great discussions here and the photography community in Santa Fe has continued to grow. But I have to say when I was first beginning, you know, it was, I, I, it was, it was kind of a lonely endeavor. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an extrovert, but I'm also a loner. So I love being in the dark room by myself. And so really the evolution of myself as a photographer was in tandem with myself as a traveler, you see. And that's a, actually, in some ways, it's, a, it's an advantage and a disadvantage because, because I do go to these ultra-exotic places, and that's really what I love and specialize in, it's also um, a problem because it's very easy to become, you know, just seduced by just the act of travel, right, because it's so exciting in itself. And one also is trying to create images, um, and so everything seems new and fresh and wonderful because it's a new place, 
right? So mm-hmm. that's a problem in itself. And so I always am trying to see a new place with new eyes, and that is really, really challenging. And I have to say the editing part can be hard, too, and one of the biggest breakthroughs I had as a self-critiquer, which is really what you're asking in many ways, is when I learned to disassociate myself from any emotional attachment that I had while I was doing that, taking that picture. I don't care how much I liked that person. I don't care how hard it was to set it up. I don't care, you know, anything about what happened while I was uh, taking that picture. I can just look at an image as an image fake. And that is... That took me a long time, and that's a huge advantage. Yeah, I see that a lot in student portfolios where they get very emotionally attached to an image because of the effort or the challenges that they face in actually creating the image. And the image doesn't fit, you know, or it isn't as representative of the other body of work that they've submitted in the portfolio because of the exact thing you're talking about, that emotional attachment they have to, to the image separate from you know, whatever successful aesthetic qualities the image possesses itself. Right, and so you can imagine how much harder it is when you go on, you know, to these, you know, absolutely fantastic locations that I go to. So, you know, I really have to be extra vigilant um, when I'm editing yeah. and when I'm, when I'm photographing. It's too easy to fall into the cliches. It's too easy to become just enamored by the whole scene. A lot of people think, you know, look at, Tra- you know, they aspire to travel all over the world to make images of exotic faces and people. And I think one of the one of the traps that that you can face as a photographer is that the stimulus is so overwhelming that sometimes it's hard to discern not only you know what to photograph, but how to photograph it so that that there's a sort of conciseness to what the image is saying or trying to convey. How has that changed for you from when you first started going out to these locations and making photographs till now? Well, it's pretty much a lot of what you're saying. I look at the early pictures, and um, there's so much I didn't understand technically about photography. Because I really do think it's a photography is a a delicate balance of um, thinking and feeling, intuition and creativity. So um, if you're not in a certain flow and you, you're not kind of right brain, left brain and, and a great balance, it can be difficult. And I definitely notice that when I look at my older images. And also, I, um, you know, really, I, I, I was just documenting, you know, places. And that's what happens when people go traveling. They just sort of, you just sort of say, oh, great looking person. Oh, great scene. You know, oh, great this. And, um <laughs> You know, I've always said to my students, there's no such thing as a boring subject. There's just boring ways of looking at things. Well, I'm looking at these great subjects, and there's a lot of boring ways to photograph them. And so what I've done over, you know, the the years is to train myself to constantly be looking at a, um, a situation and, and why why do I even want to press the shutter? Why do I? What am I interested? Am I real? You know, it, what is it about this person? What is it about the scene? What is it about the color and the light? And a lot of times I'm asking these questions, you know, unconsciously. But I I, I am aware I have trained myself to to really kind of go. There has to be a reason for clicking this shutter. And when you're traveling, a lot of times it's just oh. You know, new, 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 and that's not good enough for me, you know, anymore. And so, that's um, always a challenge for me, photographing. Hmm. One of the things that I love about um, the people stuff that you you do is how 
close you get to them, particularly with your use of a wide, wide angle lens. You know, you create this sense of intimacy as a result rather than, you know, the kind of picture that's typically taken at a distance of, you know, five to 10 feet. How did you come to, to make that choice in terms of photographing people? And what do you feel it adds to your, to your images, or res, images as a result of, of taking that approach? Well, it's true. Most people don't think of a 20-millimeter lens as a portrait lens, but it, it sure is one of my favorite ones. And it also has to do with the, dy- the social dynamic of photographing someone. If I'm using a lens that close, it means that person obviously is aware that I'm there, and they are engaged in their own way, um, and they're fine with having me there. And a lot of times... It's not just a portrait with the person looking at me. I really am interested in images of uh, people in their own world, you know, an environmental portrait. So working with the wide angles is a, has a couple of different um, values to me. And one is is that just the, the optical value of, of just the way the wide angle is and what's ever closest you know, is, is exaggerated a bit and that is great and then I can add depth by having you know, additional actual, you know, images and that could be images in their own right. I'm trying to incorporate one, two, three, four, you know, maybe even more images in one particular scene that you can really only do with a wide angle lens. And then really I'm getting something that has to do with the spirit of the person because they've allowed me to be, you know, in their personal envelope. And everybody, of course, each culture has their own personal boundaries, but when you're working with a 20 millimeter, I'm in their boundaries for sure. And mm. that is very important to me that people, you know, um, see me as a person and know that I see them as a person and not just a subject for my pictures. You teach a lot of classes about doing this kind of work. And I'm sure that probably one of the number one questions you're always asked is about, well, how do you approach people to make, make their photographs? Cause it's, it seems to be like the most thing that the one thing that m- most people find intimidating, whether they're photographing people here at home or whether, especially when they're um, abroad. What's what's the advice that you give them in terms of um, breaching that gap, particularly when the same language isn't being spoken? You know, I think it's it's true. I do get that question. To me, it's one of the oddest questions because you know we live in communities, we're around people all the time. Uh, in many ways, it's a particularly Western question, I have to say. Um, I, I don't going. I just came back from India, where people basically are sitting in your lap and love to be photographed. It's never a question that would even occur to ask, you know, among themselves. So, it's actually a very cultural specific question, and um, you know. To be honest, it requires a little bit of a long answer, but the short one is is that really photographing people has very little to do with the other person. It has to do with your own personal psychology, that if you feel that you are taking or getting or shooting, I mean, we have a lot of very aggressive words in photography. If you feel that way, you know, then um, that's an impediment. I feel that 90% of the people in the world really love to have their picture taken, and I think it's a sign of respect, and it's a way for me to get more engaged. I mean, it's just all a very positive thing. So I'm approaching it, you know, expecting someone to say yes and not taking it personally if someone says no. And I give people lots of chances to say no um, non-verbally before I even raise the camera to my face, which is also part of working so close. Mm. They know I'm there. 
so, you know, per- really, I think photographing people is less about the other person than even though I don't expect the world to sit up and say cheese for me, by no means. It's my responsibility to create a, an environment where someone feels okay about it. And, um, you know, uh, and I also think if, if you don't like having your own picture taken, you don't have any um, business photographing other people. You know, it's just basically I approach people the same way I would like to be approached with a camera. I mean, it's it's actually quite simple. Well, just the nature of the work that you do is is pretty challenging. I think people look at your images and they think about, you know, how much fun it is and, you know, all the wonderful people and all the great traveling. But a day worth of shooting, I I imagine, can be quite exhausting because, you know, you're getting up very early in the morning you're walking around with all this gear and, you know, shooting probably not just at sunset, but way past sunset and then coming back and getting some rest and then going back out there and doing it again. How do you, how do you, you know, pace yourself and handle that when you're, when you're on, on assignment, either a self-assignment or for, for a magazine in terms of all the energy and the demands on you, particularly physically that are required in order to pull off these images? Uh, well, it's true because being a travel photographer, I mean, I, I actually am a, what I consider myself a bad life photographer because I'm always troubleshooting, which has advantages too because it does force me to be more creative because anybody can photograph in great light. But oftentimes I'm not in places in great light and I, I have to create, you know, a compelling image even though um, it's not so-called the magic light time. And I, and I am photographing all day and now that I've added... Infrared means I can even photograph in some of the worst like you know whatsoever and but you know i this is where my outdoor background has also helped me. I mean, I started out before in photography you know as a mountain guide, and I was a guide on the Colorado River. I mean, I have a lot of background um in the outdoors, and that makes a big difference because I feel very comfortable in almost any environment, and that's why I like these more remote locations um but, uh, you know, I have to stay in shape. And um, and I also, it's really about psychological pacing. Again, I know I don't have to photograph every single moment. You know, I just get into gear when um, I see something that works for me. So I I have to pace myself, and I also have to overcome what I consider, you know, the, these inertia problems. It's really... There's always a good reason not to photograph, you know. You don't feel well, you want a cup of coffee, the light's not good, you don't have the right lens, especially when you're traveling. There's a lot, my bag's too heavy. And I've learned that, again, that's my personal psychology and that I have to find ways around the inertia. And, you know, one of the biggest problems is that I'm photographing alone a, a lot and I have to keep my energy up, you know, when I'm working sometimes with a group and I do these photo tours, my gosh, it's so easy. I'm feeding off the energy of the group and I see someone doing something creative and that inspires me. But I tell you, on assignment by myself sometimes, I would really have to push myself and have long discussions, you know, and make sure that I stayed up um, for the critical times. Hmm. How has being able to write provided you opportunities as a photographer that you otherwise wouldn't have been able to uh, to achieve? I don't think you can become a professional photographer unless you know how to write. Because, um, like, for example, the geographic assignments I've had, they all come from a written proposal. And when you're trying to propose to editors, you know, it comes from a written proposal. 
being able to write articles, being able to write books. I mean, it, it really helps in the profession, um, being able to string a sentence together or a paragraph. I mean, I certainly don't think of myself as a premier travel writer, but it's been really helpful to have that skill, um, you know, there. And I, I, I don't think I would have made it without it. Because a lot of the stuff that you've done has been has been not you waiting by the phone and someone calling you and saying, Nevada, I have this great assignment for you. I think a lot of them have been, you know, has been as a result of you taking initiative to say, oh, this is something that I think is interesting, something I want to shoot, and then pitching it out there and and trying to make it happen. How much of would you say that your your career and the, the things that you've been known for have resulted from you taking the initiative in that way? Oh, 99.9%. You know, I mean, really, even though people think of myself as established and they assume the phone is ringing, it doesn't work that way. I'm constantly writing proposals, auditioning, you know, new editors come to magazines, and um, it's it's just the, the way of the business. And I, I feel, especially the type of articles I want to do, I mean, are, if you look at the magazines and, uh, and the travel-oriented situations, I mean, they're mainly geared toward Europe and America and a little bit of Mexico and a little bit of Canada. And here I'm going to these, you know, places that people, you know, don't even know how to pronounce, let alone maybe don't even know exist. So it's, um, it's certainly up to me to propose compelling reasons why a, a magazine would want an article in such a way. And I have to say that uh, a lot of my audience for my, for my articles and also for stock photography actually comes in from Europe, too. It's not just America-based. Mm. So I have to spread out, you know, my tentacles, you know, worldwide. Also Asia, too. Hong Kong, Singapore. Do you find that there are certain projects that um, there may not be a whole lot of interest in, but that you are interested in going out there anyway, and then that you find some other project that actually gets paid to help fund? You know, the more yeah, I, I, yeah, I have. And, and I think one, especially in these trying times, one has to reinvent themselves. And I think that's one of the beauties of being a freelance, actually. And, and, and I embrace that because, to be honest, I'm not doing as many magazine assignments as I used to. I, I really think there's, um, there's much, there's much fewer of them and many more photographers competing for them. And, um, it's very stressful. Uh, to to stay in that field. So I'm actually not concentrating that much on magazines, and I'm doing more of my own personal projects. Plus, the, but to supplement that, I'm doing a lot of commercial stock, and it's not necessarily the type of photography that people might think. I'm not doing uh, that much travel stock. I'm actually um, working with Getty and Corvus, and in the gateway cities, like when I go to India and I go to New Delhi or Thailand, Bangkok, I'm setting up um, office shoots, you know, actual hiring models, hiring um, office buildings and things like that, and doing more stock shoots that are higher production value and have a a better market and that are supporting my personal projects because that's my great love. Mm. So these these images are pretty much stuff that would be used like in catalogs or brochures that speak to the business business right. end, but they're, in, but they're in, in these locations that most photographers probably aren't have access to. 
Exactly. And, and again, diversity, diversity, diversity. So I have different, you know, um, nationalities I'm working with. And, you know, no one would even recognize them as my images. And I could care less if my name was even on them, you know, because one just has to accept the realities of the business the way it is. And because I want to do these uh, projects, like I'm working on a long-term one uh, in Myanmar, which I've been going to for 20 years. I'm working on another project called Outer India, um, where I'm going to some very remote locations in the periphery, and India's big, right, uh, of India. And so I have these long-term projects that nobody is paying for them, but and, and I have to find a way to fund them. And, of course, eventually they, they flow out into the world in terms of exhibits or books. I mean, there's actually more venues for showing, showing one's photography than there ever used to be. It used to be just magazines and books, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just, as you, we all know, it's so much wider now. But, you know, the pay is still way down there. I don't think the day rate for magazine photography has gone up in 20 years. Do you? Yeah, it's probably, if it's gone up, it's gone up very nominally. Yeah, and also with giving away more rights. So I don't know many professions that that's true for. Even the minimum wage has gone up a few times, you know, in those past 20 years. So, you know, photographers aren't perfect business people, but commercial photographers are. So I have to stick my foot in the world where the money is, and that's in commercial photography. Well, let's speak about this whole business end of it, because I think that's always the biggest challenge for most photographers. Because most photographers, at least people who aspire to become photographers, think about the idea of going out there and and photographing, not realizing that 80, 90 percent of your time is spent just sustaining, sustaining the business. Where did you, you know... I'm sure you made a lot of mistakes along the way, but where did you feel like you hit your stride in terms of the business end as opposed to photographically? Well, you know, I I cavalierly sauntered into photography without awareness of the business end. Luckily, I was, because I was working in the outdoors, I was an outward bound instructor and a guy, I was able to segue um, expeditions and photography projects onto um, situations where I was being paid overseas, you know, places I wanted to go, because you can't go into a magazine and say, I want to photograph, you know, in Tibet and show them flowers from your garden. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. So luckily, I was able to build up a portfolio in these exotic places, so I was able to write articles and show people, you know, um, situations, so I was able to make the transition a little bit more easily into photography. But I realized that I had to meet people in person. That's another thing I think it's important. As a, you know, but this was a while ago before the internet was very, you know, big. And I would go to New York and I would meet with editors and face-to-face contact. I still think is important, although people are very, very busy. Um, but uh, I, I really kind of had to find my own way through the situation. And I was very clear with myself that I wanted to stay with this travel. I, I worked for the local paper here in Santa Fe for a couple of years. Very good experience. I think everybody should have newspaper experience. Boy, that teaches you to stay on your toes. Um, but I realized I, I didn't want to work locally. I really wanted to work overseas. And that's where your question came in, you know, I learned how to write those proposals. And sometimes I just went and did things, and then I would um, propose it uh, after the fact. I don't really suggest that, but getting started, sometimes one still has to do that. And and here I am telling you I'm still doing the same thing on, on an even bigger scale. But, uh, you know, over the years, I've realized that because the magazine rates are so low, 
and digital photography is so expensive. I mean, I look at what I used to spend in, you know, film and cameras as nothing compared to what I hemorrhage with uh, digital photography. I mean, I feel like I'm buying a new something every week. And, you know, I never thought in a million years a while back that I would be spending five to $8,000 for a camera that was only good for three years. So I don't know how young photographers do it because um, it, it's certainly more expensive than when I started out. And then, um, and it's more competitive and the magazine field is lower. So one does have to look where you can make the money. And uh, being a jack of all trades has really served my purposes, being able to teach, being able to write articles, being able to lead a photo tour, you know, doing uh, exhibits. You know, sometimes it's, it's a bit overwhelming with how many not only pieces of pies, but how many flavors of pies, you yeah. know, I have to juggle. But I don't think there's any other way around it um, because I do not want to be uh, a fashion photographer or a commercial photographer or a landscape photographer. You know, I really have chosen a field that's the jack-of-all-trades travel, and um, that means working extra hard to stay in it. Yeah. The, the, the pay is for, for magazine work. Um, do you believe that there's still a sort of a cachet to have been published in in magazines, and that that somehow the, the existence of your images on on a page uh, in that way affords you a certain leverage or cachet? Oh, absolutely! Being able to have, you know, say I work for Geo Magazine, National Geographic, you know, outside, absolutely, there's a cachet. Publishing books, there's a cachet. You know, I, I think. Um, Sometimes it's worth doing it, but you don't have to say how many times <laughs> you know you've worked for those magazines. You know, so uh, I kind of feel like right now, you know, I've paid my dues in in that respect, and I, I certainly love working for magazines, and um, you know, I still will continue to, but I'm not going to bleed as much for them as I used to. What putting together a book is is quite an investment of time and energy, and you've produced. Several, um, I, and I, I, I find it hard to imagine when you find the time to, 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 you know, to sit down there and edit through all the images and you know write the text and do, you know do all that stuff. How do you work that out? But I know because I know you're working on something right now. Um, how do you you know manage your time so that you can do that? Particularly, you know, when you have um, numerous deadlines that you have to meet for all the work that you do. Well, actually, if you look at what I did those books, they were quite a while ago because I, I, I wrote a book on photography and I did a book on Vietnam and I learned a lot uh, about publishing and it did take up a lot of my time and I realized that I had to get busy, um, you know, creating income instead of just doing the books. So actually, I had a hiatus for almost about 10 or 15 years and now I am, as you're right, back uh, writing a book and it's it's one that I've, I'm determined to finish this year because it's about the evolution of myself as a traveler and photographer and there's actually quite a bit of writing involved which is why it's taking me so long because writing is painful. And, but it's very important to me that I, I finish this book. So, uh, you know, I have to take it in bits and pieces but one does have to realize that that books really um, are very, very good for one's reputation, and it's very also it's very satisfying. I mean, it's just very satisfying to have something tangible, you know, that sits on a table, especially in these days of 
digital images where you wonder where they even are, and sometimes, unfortunately, they're not anywhere because you've lost them. But um, so a book, you know, has a weight to it, which is very satisfying. But I, I am taking it, in, you know, in, in little bits and pieces, and um, I just carve out. Uh, when I come back like I am right now for large chunks of time, I actually have um, a matrix of a schedule of what I need to accomplish, you know, over these next two few months before I start traveling again. And it's pretty hefty. Hmm. You do a lot of traveling. You've traveled all over the world. But is there a certain place that you have a particular affinity for that you can't wait to get back to? And, and if so, you know, what is it about that place that captivates you? Well, you know, no, I don't really have a favorite place. You know, I guess the glib answer is my favorite place is wherever I am at the time, which is actually not so glib because it's it's good to live like that. However, you know, I seem to take um, areas in, in chunks, except for when I was working for magazines when it wasn't really up to me where I went. But, you know, I spent a lot of time in the Himalayas, I, you know, and then I spent a big chunk of time in um, Southeast Asia, Vietnam and Laos, and um, I, I always go back to Myanmar. I mean, that, you know, has a certain pull to me. I spent, a, you know, long period of time in the 80s in China, and now I seem to be spending quite a bit of time in India. Um, so it's it's not a question of having a favorite place. I certainly am, am drawn more to Asia than I am to Africa or South America, but I'm sure if, if you know, destiny kind of pulled me, you know, in those directions, then I would just follow those pathways. I mean, I just love being outside my own, um, you know, my own known territory. I like this terra incognito, and wherever that is, you know, in the world is, you know, really fine with me. And what happens when you're home? Do you put the camera aside? Do you continue shooting? Uh, what do you turn to the camera to when you're back home in, in Santa Fe or in the States? Well, sadly, the computer. I turn to the computer because the editing process takes over. Like right now, I've just come back from, I've been gone since October, and I have, a, you know, a, about five trips I have to edit, and the editing process takes time. Plus, I'm actually printing for a show. I have a, a show next summer, so I'm starting the printing process for that again, and I'm, then I'm finishing this book. So, no, I don't shoot very much. I mean, I have um, some projects, you know, here and there, some assignments, but really, Santa Fe for me is about work. And people say, well, aren't you glad to get home? I'm like, no, because <laughs> I know what that means. I mean, I love Santa Fe. I love my house and all that. But it means working 10 to 12 to 14 really, really long days when I'm here, you know, and, and, and a lot of sitting at a computer, which is not the reason I got involved in photography, but that's another, um, you know, uh, that's just the way it is these days. One has to uh, have truces with computers. Yeah. With digital, you never actually have to print an image because it's right there on the screen. And, you know, you're, if you're working for someone, you're sending it electronically. But how, how important is actually making the print of a photograph, particularly after a, a long trip in, 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 your, in your process and your vision of, of the photograph? Well, you know, it's interesting because um, when I was working for magazines, I, I never made any. I refused to make prints because I didn't like the art and pro, the for color printing. Black and white was something else in the wet dark room, but for color printing, 
just the the prints that came out I thought looked terrible. So it was very satisfying for me to see them, you know, uh, in magazines because they would be printed correctly for the most part. But now with um, this is where I think digital is absolutely fantastic. I had my first major show um, about a year and a half ago in January here in Santa Fe. It was a, a retrospective about 60 images. And I, it was just fantastic, the whole gestalt of, you know, creating uh, an image. And I, and I kept it in my own studio. You know, I print here and I have my own printers. And, and uh, I, I work with a Photoshop expert because it is involved, I think, making a print. But I went back and read all those Hensel Adams books about, you know, what it is to make a print. And I, I looked at images completely differently um, when I was printing. And it was tangible. It was something I could, you know, pick up and hold, which... These day and ages, like I say, it's just much more ephemeral working with uh, with digital images. Um, they're just sort of on the screen. There's no tactile feeling to them. So I love printing. I just I just really love it. Have you um, played around with any of the black and white black and white printing? Um, you know, I I what's interesting is is that I still consider myself a color photographer, but. Um, and and I I come from a journalism background, so I have very much instilled in me. I, I don't crop anything. I do not change any content. You know, I couldn't give an editor a Chrome and say crop it here if they want to crop it. It's up to them. Plus, it's a personal challenge for me in the field to get as much as I can write in the camera, and I it helps me stay sharp. So I'm not saying that's right or wrong for somebody else, but it, it's kind of my personal philosophy and it's my paradigm that kind of works for me. So, But what I do love is what I'm working with is I'm able to desaturate certain parts of the image. And I've, I've been doing a lot of photography recently up in the um, northeastern part of India with the Nagas and Apananis. I mean, these amazing tribes. And I realize that a, a lot of the photography works better um, in black and white, or even better, with a little bit of color, you know, desaturating certain parts of it. So even though I'm not changing any content of the image, it's really exciting for me to work in, with the printing process of um, the way the black and white skeleton starts to emerge, you know, mm -hmm. starting with the beginning of our conversation. So I can make that more prominent in an image by desaturating the color. And uh, it's, it's very, very fun. I, I, I just think, you know, uh, as much as I bemoan working in front of the computer, um, I actually love it, to be very honest. And I can get totally absorbed in it. And the printing process is just perfect for me because um, I feel like I, I don't have to work with, you know, those toxic... Remember we used to come out of wet dark rooms and kind of reeling from the toxic fumes, you know? Yeah, smelling of Vapors. <laughs> well, I come reeling out now with kind of cartoon red eyes from looking at a screen. But I just... It's infinitely more satisfying because of the ability to control images in ways that can never do before. And that has absolutely nothing to do with, you know, Photoshop, you know, uh, uh, gadgets or manipulator or anything like that. Just what you can do just with the image. I just love it. Tell me about the exhibit that you're doing, but specifically the challenge of uh, editing your pictures for ex exhibition, um, choosing the images that you're going to have up on the wall because you're you're limited to a finite, finite space. So how does that create you know, some different challenges as opposed to choosing images, say, for a book or an article? Well, you can imagine having a 25-year retrospective. I had a lot of images to choose from. 
um, some of them, it was pretty easy because they just didn't make good prints. You know, they would look good in uh, projection, but we would start to print them and, and immediately reject them. And this is where it was helpful to have um, uh, people I trusted, people who I trust their eye and um, uh, to help me, you know, look at images. You don't want to get too many people involved because there's going to be a lot of subjective opinions, you know. But I, I had a few, uh, two or three people, including um, one of the, the gallery owners, of course, because he knows what sells. He knows what works for his gallery. So, But ultimately, you know, it came down to the images that I liked and the images that worked best as prints. Because like I say, they take, they take on their own life. They're um, completely different on a piece of paper than... Um, uh, you know, they would project it. And because I, I also chose to print on matte paper because I've been so used to seeing my images in glossy magazines that I wanted to be an artist. And so <laughs> I was printing on matte paper. And I have to say, it's much harder to print on this kind of rag paper. I was using the Hanamil photo rag, right? Right. Because, you know, in order to get the, the D-Max, the really rich, saturated colors, we had to work really hard on that. And some images just couldn't translate um, to that type of paper. So there were some technical reasons why images didn't work, and then there were just ones that um, you know meant a lot to me. That uh, I had a different type of emotional attachment, not just that you know I liked the place, but it was like a, a pivotal image where I felt like my photography changed because of that image. And so there were a number of those too. So it, it was great fun picking mm-hmm. out the images. Well, the last question I always ask is I ask a photographer to recommend another photographer for listeners to discover and explore. Um, it can be anyone from you know, or your recent discovery or someone you've long admired. But who is that one photographer and why? Um, I think because we've talked so much uh, about, about this, how contrast plays out in an image. And also because I do teach and I see how hard it is for, for young photographers to understand, or, or beginning photographers, I should say, to understand why it is so critical to have the skeleton of contrast. So let me pick a couple of photographers who I think are masters at color high contrast images. And that's David Allen Hari, who works for National Geographic, and Alex Webb, who is a magnum photographer. And I think they are masters of color photography with high contrast. And beautiful examples of, of, of exactly that. Yeah, their, their work is amazing. Great recommendations. Yeah, and, and their work is very complex, too. A lot of layers. Um, they're not simple reads. And I, I also really appreciate that because, you know, in a way, I'm trying, I'm trying to train myself, like I say, a virtuoso of scene. And um, as photographers, we should see the world differently than um, people who are not photographers. Mm-hmm. On the you know, we, were my, we should become maestros of scene, don't you think? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was a real, real pleasure to have the opportunity to finally get a chance to talk to you. Oh, absolutely my honor and my pleasure. But, you know, great fun. Thanks for joining me for another episode. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. You can also leave messages or dialogue with other listeners by following me on Twitter, Facebook, or joining the Candid Frame group on Flickr. Till next time, this is Ibarian X Pirello, and this is The Candid Frame.
Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.